This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. If you'd like to follow along as I read, it's printed in your bulletin or found on page 228 in the Bibles in your rows. 1 Samuel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you this morning. And uh, if you've been around for the last few weeks, we've been looking at the first half of the Old Testament book, 1 Samuel, this summer. And 1 and 2 Samuel is the story of how Israel goes from a tribal society to a monarchy. And there are lots of great individual stories embedded within this larger narrative, stories about God's faithfulness, to his people, even in the midst of their unfaithfulness to him. And through the first three chapters, uh, we've been learning about the emergence of a new leader in Israel, the prophet Samuel. Chapter 1 is about Samuel's birth. Chapter 2 is about the guys that he is replacing and why they need replacing. Chapter 3 is God's call to Samuel, his establishment of Samuel as a prophet in Israel. But then you get to chapter 4. And all of a sudden, we don't hear anything about Samuel at all. In fact, he gets no airtime at all until chapter 7. And if you're reading this, you might ask, right, is this disjointed storytelling on the part of the biblical writer here? I mean, you get Samuel, 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 and then boom, you know, radio silence for three chapters. Well, I think it's not disjointed storytelling, but rather, I think it's a reminder to us that Samuel, as great as he is, is not the hero of this story. He's not even the main character in this story, but God is. And so today we're going to be walking through chapters 4 to 6, which is a series of incidents that go together, and we're going to be learning about uh, the Ark of the Covenant. That'll be our sort of our first big heading. Uh, secondly, we'll be talking about how it was lost and then how it came back to Israel. And then thirdly, we're going to ask, what do we learn about God from these chapters? He's the main character, after all in this story, all right? The Ark of the Covenant, how it was lost, and then what do we learn about God? So let's think about it that way this morning. First, the Ark of the Covenant. It comes up right away, and uh, what Grace just 
read to us verse 1 of chapter 5, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now, what is the ark of God? Sometimes it's called the ark of the covenant. Now, I did not grow up around the Bible or with any familiarity with the Bible, so when I first started to read the Bible, I was very confused by this because I thought the ark of the covenant was that big boat that Noah used to ride out the flood. And some of you are laughing as you're thinking about that. Some of you might be right there with me. Um, turns out, two totally different things, all right? Both called the ark, which is confusing, but the one is the big boat. That's not this, okay? Uh, this, uh, the ark of the covenant, was a container or a box. And if you'd seen uh, the first Indiana Jones movie, which we have an a, a, a image there from, you know what this looks like. It was not terribly big. You see Harrison Ford there, and I had to explain to my kids, this is not Han Solo, different guy altogether. Uh, it's not terribly big, about, yeah, this is pretty good, actually, uh, the way they've rendered it here, about four feet long by two and a half feet high, uh, by two and a half feet wide. It was overlaid in gold, had a gold ring at every corner through which you put a pole on either side. The Levites, the priests, would use those poles to transport it. In fact, they were the only ones who were allowed to transport the ark. I said it was a, a container or a box. Well, containers contain things, right? So what does it contain? Well, it had within it the Ten Commandments. And you might ask, well, why? Well, it was called the Ark of the Covenant. The covenant is the relationship or the terms of the relationship, the relationship that God has with his people. And so the Ten Commandments then were a description of what that relationship is supposed to look like. And it starts with God's grace. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, it begins with what God has done for his people, but then it goes on to describe, if you're going to be my people, well, then you should have no other gods before me, and then so on and so on and so on. So the Ark of the Covenant, containing the Ten Commandments, is a reminder to the people that God is with them, that God had worked among them, that he had entered into a relationship with them. And as I said, it was totally overlaid with gold. And on the top, there was a thick slab of gold, which was called the mercy seat. On each side uh, of the mercy seat, there were cherubim, angels with outstretched wings. It's supposed to symbolize God's presence. But God doesn't have a body, and so you can't create an image of God. And so they picture instead the angels. Remember, it's called the Lord of hosts. The angels that would have been surrounding him in his presence. And where was the Ark of the Covenant kept? Well, except for when the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness, the Ark of the Covenant was put into the back room of the tabernacle. As one writer put it, uh, movies should teach us that all the important stuff happens in the back room, right? Like if you, uh, if you ever watched a mob movie, you can go to the front of the Italian restaurant, but it's in the back room, right, where the most important things happen. Same thing here. Same thing in the tabernacle. The tabernacle had a back room, called the Holy of Holies, behind a thick curtain. Pretty much the only thing back there was the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest was the only one allowed to go back there. And then only once per year on the Day of Atonement, he would sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 16. And when the Ark was first made, Moses was allowed to go in and to look at the Ark and in Exodus chapter 25, God says to Moses, there at the Ark of the Covenant, there at the mercy seat, I will meet with you. 
And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So Moses, looking at the ark of the covenant, the mercy seat, he sees, experiences the glory of God, the weight of God's presence above the mercy seat. God speaks to him from there and he gets a glimpse of God's glory. And isn't that interesting? File this away for later. But the mercy seat is both the place where Moses sees God's glory, God's power, his transcendence, his weightiness, his perfection, his worth. It's also the place where you would come for forgiveness. The sacrifice was made there on the Day of Atonement. Glory and forgiveness come together at the mercy seat. So the Ark of the Covenant was immensely important for the people of Israel. It pointed to the presence of the ruling, speaking, forgiving God in their midst, the God who had called them out of Egypt. But then in our story today, it's the story of how the ark was lost. This is the real you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark story. So let's think about that. Uh, the story begins back in chapter 4. We can be a bit brief here, but I, I am going to sort of walk you through all of these chapters because I think you need to have the whole story in order to understand what's really going on here. Basically, and we talked about this the last couple of weeks, Israel was in a state of decay at this point. Emblematic of what was going on in the nation as a whole was the situation with the priesthood in particular. Eli was at the end of his life. He was largely ineffectual at his job. His two sons, who should have been doing a lot of the heavy lifting at this point, they were corrupt, they were greedy, sexually immoral, they were manipulative, they used their position for their own gain. And so that's the backdrop to this story. And so chapter 4 begins with Israel going out to war with the Philistines. And there's actually about a 500-year period in Israel's history where the Philistines, these are sea peoples who... Uh, came from sort of the Mediterranean, but they inhabited five major cities in what now we would call Palestine. They become, for about 500 years, the chief rival, this pesky uh, enemy to the people of Israel. And the Philistines were tough because they were winning the arms race. They had a virtual monopoly on iron, which they used to make weapons, right? Better weapons, easier time winning. So chapter 4, verse 1 begins like this. The Israelites go to battle against the Philistines, and they get crushed. Not even close. They lose badly. Israel's routed. 4,000 men are killed. And the people are completely demoralized by this. How could this happen, they're asking. We thought God was with us. God delivered us from big, bad Egypt. How could we lose a battle like this? Well, someone speaks up, chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. They say, wait a minute. You know, you know in our history... We had other times where the, the odds were, were stacked against us in, in, in much more impossible ways. We went up against Jericho. It looked like for sure we were going to lose, but we had the Ark of the Covenant with us, and the walls came tumbling down. And then when we were trying to cross the Jordan River with a huge wagon train full of livestock and families and our possessions, and, and we thought there was no way to get across this raging river, but then we brought out the Ark of the Covenant, and then there was a dried up place, and a place we could ford the river, a place we could cross into the promised land. We need to go get the ark. If we have the ark of the covenant with us, we can't lose. So that's what they do. They send for the ark of the covenant. And Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's two sons, they go and they get it. And they bring it out. Chapter 4, verse 4. 
for the battle with the Philistines. And as they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the camp, the Israelites are excited. They're jazzed up. They charge into this battle with all the confidence in the world. Banners flying, cheering, the Lord is on our side. And they get trounced again. It's worse even this time. It says it was a great slaughter. Chapter 4, verse 10. This had never happened. They'd never taken the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence among them. They'd never taken it out into battle and been defeated, let alone slaughtered like this. And even more devastating, the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines as a trophy of war. When I was in college, we uh, snuck into the house of some friends of ours. And I can't remember what they had done to us. They had done something to us. We snuck into their house, though, to get them back, middle of the night. And uh, we, took, we messed up their whole living room. I think we took a lot of their furniture and put it out on the front lawn uh, of their house. And then we, uh, we took one of their lamps, some signature lamp. I don't even remember what it was. But we took one of their lamps, and we put it in our front window of our apartment, you know, as a symbol, a trophy of our victory over them. Now, this was really dumb for a number of reasons. Uh, the biggest reason being that there were four of us in our house and there were eight of us in their house. And so when they came the next day, we thought maybe they would try to take something of ours, but instead what happened is they proceeded to beat us up for about a half hour. In fact, it was not just eight to four, it was eight to three because one of our roommates, a guy named Keith, stayed in his loft the entire time we were being beaten up by these guys. We kept yelling up, Keith, come down. And he was saying, well, if I come down, things are going to get out of hand. We were saying, it's already out of hand. We're, we're losing here. He never came down. I've had trouble forgiving him about it. This is kind of group therapy for me to process this through with you. So thank you for that. Point being, the trophy of war, right? Well, this is what happens here. They take the Ark of the Covenant as a trophy of war. At the end of chapter 4, a messenger runs uh, back to bring the news to Eli. Eli's uh, very old, not in good health at this time. The messenger tells him the battle is lost, but not only that, your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they've been killed. And not only that, the Ark of the Covenant has been taken by the Philistines. And hearing all of this, Eli falls over backward and dies. Everyone in Israel at the moment is asking, how could this be? How could God let this happen? This is a disaster. Well, then it gets worse even. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, hears about her husband's death. She hears about her father-in-law's death. She hears about the Ark of the Covenant being captured by the Philistines, and she goes into premature labor. The baby is born prematurely and survives, which is great. But mom doesn't. But before she dies, she names the baby Ichabod, which means the glory is gone. That's what everybody in Israel is feeling. The glory is gone. So then we get to chapter 5, which is what Grace read to us a bit earlier. Chapter 5, verse 1, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now, what kind of God was Dagon? Does anybody know? He was the corn god. Not corn dog, which would be pretty cool. Uh, I've always thought that was a biblical food, if there ever was one, a corn dog. Uh, no, the corn god. The, the, Dagon was the, the god of the corn harvest, which just goes to show you we can make a god out of anything, right? We'll come back to that in a moment. 
But I just want you to note right now that the Philistines did not believe that Yahweh, the God of Israel, they didn't believe that he didn't exist. You see, the Philistines were pagans. They, they believed in all kinds of gods, but all those gods, they were tribal gods. They were gods with limited scope, limited influence, limited power. So it's not that the Philistines thought Yahweh didn't exist, just that he wasn't useful or he's not as powerful as their god, as, as Dagon, as the corn god. Verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So the first night that they put the Ark of the Covenant in the same space with Dagon, Dagon falls face down before the Ark as if in a posture of worship. And it goes on to say, so they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Now at this point, every Israelite child hearing the story would be laughing, right? A God needing to be set back up into its place and adjusted and taken care of. The parody is intensified when the next day, Dagon doesn't just fall over, but he's dismembered. His head and his hands are chopped off. This is kind of a Humpty Dumpty situation here, right? Except no Elmer's glue to help get it back together. The priest would have known what this meant, by the way, that the head is the place of wisdom. The hands are the signs of power. This is a picture that Dagon is foolish. Dagon is powerless. Now, if it just stopped here, the priests, uh, the Philistine priests, they probably would have thought, maybe this is vandalism or something. Maybe this is you know, teenagers out too late or whatever it might be. But the rest of chapter 5 details the spread of a plague it goes throughout the city of Ashdod. There's a plague of mice, and then therefore a spread of disease. And most of the commentators think this was bubonic plague or something like it. Painful swelling of the lymph nodes and the arms and the groin. And you see symptoms like that hinted in chapter 6 um, as well. And, and so the people of Ashdod at this point, they've had enough. Get rid of the ark. we got to get rid of the ark of the covenant. And so in maybe the funniest part of the story, what do they do? Well, they send it to Gath. Another Philistine city, which is not very neighborly, right? Like, we've got this thing that's causing a plague. Let's, what if we here in Cincinnati, we just, let's send it to Columbus. You know, that's not a neighborly thing to do. But that's what happens. They send it to Gath. Same thing happens in Gath. They send it to Ekron. But the people of Ekron have heard what's happening. Before it even gets into the city of Ekron, the people say, are you trying to kill us? And the people just want this thing gone. In short order, the Ark of the Covenant, instead of being a trophy of war, becomes a hot potato that they pass from city to city among the Philistines. It's wreaking havoc everywhere. The Ark's tenure in Philistia proved to be a really long seven months. And the consensus is clear. We've got to get rid of this thing. Send it back to Israel. The question, though, is how do you do that? It's causing so much trouble. So I'm going to give you the briefest rundown of chapter 6, just so you don't miss anything. I mean, I'm going to do it in uh, 90 seconds here. Uh, there's still some question for the Philistines. Could this, just like we would, could this all be a coincidence? I mean, is this possible that this is a coincidence that they devise a kind of uh, rudimentary test? They stick the ark on the back of uh, some carts, uh, and, and, and they tie it to two cows who've just had baby calves. And uh, they put the baby calves in the Philistine town, and they know, right, absolutely, definitely, for sure, everything we know about the nature of cows is that these new mama cows are going to go naturally toward their calves, which would lead it back to the Philistines. But if they go the other direction, right, this is an indication to the Philistines that something else is up here. If this goes back to Israel, we know the ark 
needs to go back to Israel. Well, that's what happens. They don't go back to their calves. They go right out of town, head right toward Israel, lowing all the way, it says in chapter 6. And they go to that first town in Israel, Beth Shemesh. Finally, the ark is returned. There's more that happens there, but I'm just giving you the briefest synopsis. So that's the real story of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. But, but what do we learn about God? And that's why I want to camp out here just for our last few minutes. What do we learn about God? Remember, he's the main character in this story, and really all the stories in Scripture. And there's four things I want you to see, four insights, perhaps, that can help us in our understanding of how we relate to God, how we commune with God, how we interact with God. And the first thing that's most obvious in this story is that God doesn't need you. God does not need us. Maybe the most obvious thing in the whole story is that one day the ark goes out with 100,000 soldiers surrounding it, defending it, fighting for it, and they get demolished. And then just three to four days later, this ark of the covenant, without any help at all, is laying waste to the entire nation of the Philistines. It goes out with 100,000 of Israelite soldiers, and they get demolished. All on its own, three to four days later, God is laying waste to the entirety of the nation. What does this mean? Well, it means we should take God very, very seriously, but we shouldn't take ourselves very seriously at all. We need to take God really seriously, but we shouldn't take ourselves all that seriously at all. There's a tendency, you know, especially in church world, when things go well, to attach a whole lot of self-importance to the things that we're doing, to the things that we're devising. Look at what we did, right, if things go well. We don't say it that way so much. We're more pious than that. We say things more like, uh, look at how God blessed what we did, right? There's still the emphasis on what we did. God doesn't need us. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't want us, just that he doesn't need us. And re- listen, we should try and do everything, and work hard. We should do everything for the glory of God. Part of that means trying to steward well all the things that we have here. We want to do a good job with everything at New City. We want our music to be excellent. We want our preaching not just to be doctrinally accurate, but to be interesting and engaging. We want our worship services to to be inviting and warm and of high quality. We want to have a great community group structure. We want tremendous outreach to our neighborhood, and so on and so on. We, We want to do a good job with all of that. But at the end of the day, it's not the music, it's not the organizational structure, it's not the philosophy of ministry, it's him. It's him. So let's take God seriously and ourselves not so much. God does not need you. Secondly, God will not be used by you. This is a hard one to get through our minds, I think. Remember, it's called the Ark of the Covenant, right? And what's a covenant? A covenant is a relationship, or it's the terms of the relationship. And what is at the heart of the Ark? It's the heart of the relationship is the Ten Commandments, God's law, which is meant to be a comprehensive description of what it means to live all of our lives before the Lord. But do you see in this story, and all that we've learned this far in 1 Samuel, why God does not go out to battle with them in 1 Samuel 4? They're not living all of their lives before the Lord. Hophni and Phinehas, and to some extent all of the nation, they were living however they wanted to, and then they thought, 
we can bring out the ark and God will show up for us. You see that? They're not living all of their lives before the Lord. They're living however they want, and then we'll trot out the ark, and, you know, God likes to save people, and we like to need to be saved, I guess, and, and he'll show up, right? But listen, God is not a good luck charm. He's not something that you can dust off and pull out just when you need him and then ignore him the whole rest of your life. God won't let us use him like that. He won't let us use him like that. That's magic, by the way. Magic is I I want the power and the favor without wholehearted discipleship. Magic is I want the power without the relationship. I just want to tap into the force. Give me the right thing to do. That's magic, but that's not a relationship with the living God. He doesn't work that way. He won't work that way. God will not be used. Third thing, God will smash your idols. If you get near to God, your idols will fall. We said the Philistines practice a kind of paganism, right? Dagon, the the corn god, that shows us we can make a god out of anything, I said. And and that is, by the way, kind of the point of paganism. You can make a god out of anything. In uh, Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has this really interesting bit about uh, paganism, about the, the, the way the, the, the folks in the Galatian church, what they had believed before they became Christians. And Paul talks about the, the folks at the church of Galatia. He says, you know, um, he doesn't say before you met Jesus, you didn't believe in anything. This is telling, I think. He didn't say before you met Jesus, you didn't believe in anything. He says before you met Jesus, you worshiped everything. He calls it the elementary principles of the world. Paul is saying the basic elements of life, they turned into objects of worship. So work, beauty, sex, the sun, the moon, the stars, the harvest, athletics, wine, recreation. Pagans had gods for each of these things. And in Romans chapter 1, another place in the Apostle Paul, he says that this actually is the impulse of the human heart naturally in our sinfulness. We take good things and we turn them into ultimate things. We worship the creature rather than the creator. John Calvin said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. But what happens in our story? Well, God gets close to one of these idols and it falls. Dagon falls over. But you know, if God had just knocked Dagon down once in the story, you might conclude maybe that the point of this story is that in the pantheon of gods, the God of Israel is the best one. That's maybe what we would get from this story, right? In the pantheon of gods, the God of Israel is better than Dagon. He's the stronger God. He's the tougher God. But when he knocks Dagon down the second time and cuts off his head and cuts off his hands, the message is not just that God is better than Dagon, it's that Dagon is no God at all. We began the service readings from Psalm 115. I'll read to you again just what we read. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. In other words, these idols are not gods at all. They're not worthy of your worship. They are absent of life, and therefore, if you give your life to them, your life will leak out of you as well. That's what the psalmist means when he says, those who make them will become like them. 
And then he says, oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. God is saying in this whole story, not just that I'm the best God, I am the only God. I'm the true God. I'm the only thing worth giving all of your life to. One summer, a number of years ago, I read through everything that George Whitfield wrote. George Whitfield was a um, colonial uh, preacher. He's from England, but came over to the, the States during the colonial period and uh, was one of the preachers in the first Great Awakening. And I read everything that, that, that summer, everything that George Whitfield ever wrote uh, for a thesis that I was writing, including not just his public things, but his personal letters. And we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these personal letters uh, saved and compiled. But do you know how uh, Whitfield, almost always, he would sign his letters this way, uh, his valediction or his uh, complimentary close, I think they call it now. Uh, right before his name, he would write, Dagon Daily Fallen. That's the title of the sermon this morning. Dagon Daily Fallen, George Whitfield. Now, what was he, why, was he, why did he sign it that way? Well, this was Whitfield calling attention to the work of the gospel going out, and the opposition, the idols of the world collapsing before the power of the gospel, but it also wasn't just a missional reference. It's also a reference to his own life. We talk about how his relationship with God, when it was deepening, the idols, the other things that he was tempted to worship were being smashed. God will smash your idols. Finally, last thing, God is willing to humiliate himself to accomplish his purposes. One of the unique things in this story, and it becomes a theme throughout the scriptures, is that God is willing to humiliate himself in order to accomplish his purposes. You know, if they were writing headlines when the Philistines creamed Israel in those battles, and especially the battle where the ark was captured, what would the headlines of that time have been? It would have been about the weakness of Israel's God, right? It would have been, uh, obviously, the, the, the corn God is better than the than the, than the God of Israel. But God is working his purposes, even through this apparent humiliation. He's, first of all, he's teaching Israel that he's not a good luck charm. You can't just drop me out and expect me to show up for you. Secondly, he's paving the way. We didn't talk about this much, but another point of these chapters is, is God is paving the way for Samuel to come into leadership. Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, they're all sort of out of the way now after this episode. And so Samuel will come to leadership. So God's doing that in this story as well. But thirdly, God is setting this story down for us so that we would know that he's willing to let the world think he's weak to accomplish his purposes. Who would imagine that there would be a God who would work like that? But if you flip the pages over to the New Testament, what do we see? We see Jesus hanging on a tree, while the crowds mocked and jeered and laughed at him, he was willing to be humiliated to pay for the sins of the world. Remember we were talking about the mercy seat, right, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant? We said that interesting thing about it is the glory of God, the holiness of God is, is present there, but also that's where forgiveness comes together with God's glory Moses saw the glory of God above the mercy seat, but it's also the place where the high priest would make the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. But we don't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore, so where do we go as the people of God? Where do we go for glory and for forgiveness? 
Well, we go to Jesus Christ, the one who is willing to be humiliated in order to accomplish his ends. It says in John chapter 1 of Jesus, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. To see the glory of God, we go to Jesus Christ. And then in Hebrews chapter 9, it talks about all the things we've been talking about this morning about the ark. It talks about the holy of holies. It talks about the work of the high priest. It talks about the mercy seat. And then in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, it says, but when Jesus Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus, securing an eternal redemption. Where do we go to look for the glory of God? We go to Jesus Christ. Where do we go to look for forgiveness, for eternal redemption? We go to Jesus Christ. Seek him, friends. Come to Jesus. And we're going to come to the Lord's Supper right now, which is meant to be a vehicle to point us again to Jesus Christ. And as we do come to the Lord's Supper, would you pray this prayer of confession with me? The words will be on the screen above me there, but would you use this to prepare your hearts to come into God's presence, to come to his table this morning? Would you pray with me? Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. And friends, Hear the good news of the gospel, the words, the invitation of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come then, for all is ready. We come, not because we are righteous, but because we are penitent. Not because we are sufficient, but because we are in need. Not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we are whole, but because we are broken. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's New City. C-I-N-C-Y dot org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.